All right, gentlemen, here we go. We're gonna learn to do the dance. Today is the day. Marriage is like a dance, you gotta know the steps. I've told you recently I'm a child of the 80s. Back then you could show up to the dance floor and do whatever you wanted to do, I'm not gonna show you. You don't wanna see that today. Uh, but you didn't have to know the moves. You just did whatever you wanted to. But if you show up to marriage with that mentality, it's not gonna go well for you. There are real moves you've gotta learn. And that's what we're doing in Ephesians chapter five. In Ephesians five, we're gonna to learn today how to truly love and lead our brides. If this is your first time, we've been doing a verse by verse study through the book of Ephesians this year. We've come to Ephesians five, which I'm convinced is the greatest dissertation, the greatest foundation ever written on marriage. If you wanna know what God sees when he looks at marriage, you need to look no farther than Ephesians chapter five. Everything God intends for marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and his bride. Everything you see between a husband and a wife, God put there to teach us something spiritually we can't see by giving us something physically we can see. And so God gives us this picture, this painting, this portrait in Ephesians 5. And we learned last week that the wife is a picture of the church. Did you know that in the scripture, in the New Testament, we learned the New Testament tells us that the church is a picture of the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, Chelsea Glover did a marvelous job of really teaching through those verses of a woman learning her moves as she does this dance as a picture of the church and how we follow Christ's lead. And today we're gonna see how gentlemen, you and I are a picture of Christ and how we submit to our wife's need. Ephesians chapter five puts it this way in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so I want you to see, after this great dissertation on marriage, you see Paul gets down to the end and says, hey guys, but wait a minute, don't miss the point. I'm not just talking about your marriage, I'm talking about his marriage. Because everything about his marriage is to be pictured in our marriage. And so we pick it up here, and what we learn today, guys, is this, that husbands are to love their brides and lead their wives like Christ does the church. All right, now last week I told you, I'm gonna come loaded, and I'm loaded. But I want you to know, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to build you up. That's what I want to do. The world, I think, has beat men up. And I'm here to try to build you up. I want men to step into the God-given role that God has given you. And what does this mean? It means nobody shows up to a marriage and knows exactly what to do. I mean, I was a month away from my 23rd birthday when I said I do. And you know, there's something about a wedding. They're easy to plan for, believe it or not. Planning for the wedding is the easy part. Planning for marriage is the hard part. I was completely unprepared for marriage. I'm not trying to blow up my pastor at the time, but we went through a little premarital counseling. And Chris and I kind of joked today, like the only thing we can remember him saying when we went through our premarital counseling is when he looked at Kristen and said, never stop wearing makeup. Really, that's it? That's the best thing? That's the best we can do? I mean, I don't remember anything about what he said, right? We, were, we still remember that part. Uh, that may be okay advice, but there's gotta be more to it than that. Uh, we showed up, we really didn't know what to do. And I'm trying to tell you, if you don't learn the moves, uh, you really won't just figure out what to do. And this is why so many marriages are kind of in chaos instead of this great, this beautiful dance because she's doing her own thing and he's doing his own thing and they're trying to do the same thing, but they're going in opposite directions. And so uh, kind of to prepare, I guess, I, I showed up to this dance lesson 
and uh, I'm learning ballroom dancing. And I learned the first four steps in this foxtrotter. Okay, here it is. Watch this. Step, 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 step. That was a mercy clap and you know it. Okay, so I got a long way to go. All right, we got a long way to go. It's okay, guys. Listen, here's the point. We all have a long way to go, but you got to learn the first move. You got to learn the first step. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to teach us to take the first step. The first step depends on you. And that's why the linchpin, I'm convinced, of this great dissertation on marriage is Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25 kind of forms the foundation. And it says this, picking up where we left off a week ago. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I realized as a 23-year-old new uh, husband that I didn't really know how to love my wife. I thought I did. I mean, I loved her, but I didn't really know how to love her. And you can love someone, but not really know how to love someone. And it was years of me stumbling around trying to figure out the moves before I really learned how to love my wife. And you don't have to look any farther than Ephesians 5.25 to learn how to love a woman. It says, husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ. Gentlemen, say, as Christ. As Christ loved the church, and what? There it is. If you want to love your wife like Christ, give your life for your bride like Christ. That's how you love her. And so we start learning that we are a picture of Christ in the marriage. We are a picture of Christ in the home. Just as our wives are a picture of the church, the bride of Christ, we are to be a picture of Christ, the bridegroom. And he died to give life to his bride. Now I want you to know something. When we talk about love in marriage, we normally talk about love as in romantic love. And, you know, we're talking about the notebook kind of love. (laughs) Ladies, you get it. That went right over the top of men's head, like notebook. What's he talking about? Guys, I haven't seen the movie either, okay? I've heard about it. I've heard of it, okay? All right, the notebook kind of love, the, the Jerry Maguire, you complete me kind of love. Yes? Normally, that's what we talk about. You know, all the rom-coms and all the, you know, the, the romantic comedies and boy meets girls. It's all about falling in love. But do you understand that is not the kind of love that's going to help you stay in love? Falling in love is easy. Staying in love for a lifetime, that's a different kind of love. Let me tell you something. When Paul uses the word love here, he uses a word that we don't have in the English language. We got one word for love, and normally when we talk about marriage, it's the romantic love, the sexual love, that chemistry explosion kind of love, right? But understand, the Greeks had multiple words for love. And when he uses the word love here, it's not eros, and that's the word in the Greek from which we get the word erotic, and that's normally the kind of love we're talking about. No, he doesn't use that word when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know why? Because you're going to eros no matter what he says. He doesn't have to command you to do that. (laughs) Winky, winky. No, he doesn't have to tell you to do that. That's the easy part. It's going to come natural to you, right? What he's got to command you is a different kind of love. The the word here is agape. 
all right? It's the love of Jesus as he hung on the cross. It's the love of God and that it's unconditional and that it's sacrificial. I'm just telling you, gentlemen, when I hear guys sometimes complain about their wives and sometimes, you know, Pastor Phil, my husband, or my, my husband, my wife, my wife doesn't respond to me sexually and she's not really interested in me and, and I don't know what to do. And you know what? I start doing a little diagnostic questioning here. Well, tell me more about this. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. You know what the problem is? A lot, a lot, not all the time, but at least some of the time. The problem is you're all into the eros, but you're not about the agape. See, you don't get the eros and keep the eros through 50 years or more of marriage if you don't understand how to agape love your wife. The eros is the overflow of the agape. If you don't learn to love her sacrificially, if you don't learn to love her unconditionally, then you're not going to keep that love and feeling. And that's the problem with this, uh, this, this, I think, superstition in Western civilization about love. You know, you, you just live it on love, right? Living on love. Something like that. Nothing ain't worth a dime. Something, yeah. Does this sound familiar at all? Kind of, not really. I honestly hadn't planned on saying that until this morning. Obviously, hadn't practiced at all. But see, there's this idea. Love songs are written about living on love. We can live on love. No, you can't live on that kind of love. I'm talking about the eros love. That, that ebbs and flows. It kind of comes and goes. There's got to be a different kind of love. And this is the love, you see, that Paul's talking about. Agape love. You see, agape love is not emotional, ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's Jesus hanging on a cross. You see, it's that sacrificial kind of love. It's the unconditional kind of love that forms the foundation of your love relationship and marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That means if your love isn't bleeding, you're not really loving. You say a husband's love should bleed. How did Jesus love his bride to give life to his bride? He literally loved her to death. She said, you're to die for. He says, I'm willing to give my life for you. You see, a husband's love has to bleed. You see, you can't talk about love without talking about a cross. Jesus bore the cross. He took the nails. He took the pain. He took our shame. He bore all of our stain. You see, that's how Jesus loved us. And now he's telling guys, I want you to love your brides the way I have loved mine. You see, it ought to be a picture in some way of the gospel. Your love for your wife, marriage, is a picture of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins, but he rose again. You see, it's about redemption. It's a love that brings about a resurrection. It's a love that's undying, so that always brings restoration. That's God's love for us, and that's now what God says, I want you to do for your wives. You see, you can't lead until you're willing to bleed. Right there's the problem. I know a lot of men, and they lament, well, Pastor Phil, my wife won't follow me. I mean, they, you know, she listened to Chelsea's message last week about, you know, submitting to, you know, the husband and the husband's the head of the wife. And Chelsea did this remarkable job of outlining what that looks like. And well, she just won't follow me. Now, maybe, maybe. On the other hand, maybe the reason she won't follow your lead is because you ain't first chose to bleed. <laughs> why don't we follow Jesus? Why, why is he our leader? Why do we follow him as Christians? I'll tell you why we follow him. It's not because merely what he said, but because of what he did. 
You see, we follow his lead because he first chose to bleed. And right there is the problem for a lot of us. We're not willing to lay down our life for our brides and die for our brides. And so consequently, they're not willing to follow our leadership in their lives. And I want you to see that Jesus is the example for you and I to follow. is to be a picture of the gospel. And it is embedded in scripture from the book of Genesis clear to the back in the book of Revelation. It's to be a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross as he would redeem you and I, his bride. You see it in Genesis chapter two, this amazing picture of the gospel in Genesis chapter two. First of all, you got Adam, all right? In Genesis 2, 18, what's it say? It says that Adam was alone. He was a bachelor. And it tells us that God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Gentlemen, how many of you are glad that God said it's not good that man should be alone? Some of you are going home happy men, and others are just going home. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad God said it's not good that man should be alone, all right? So a bachelor, he's a bachelor, and he's alone, and God said, I'm going to bring somebody to you, Adam, to be your helpmeet, somebody to help you meet that commission, because you can't do this alone, right? So you know what happens, Genesis chapter 2, what happens, right? You have Adam, who goes into this deep sleep, and it tells us that God puts him into this deep sleep. Now, I'm convinced this isn't any old regular sleep in Genesis 2. It says it's a deep sleep, it's a supernatural sleep. Now, when you study in Scripture, what you learn is that sleep over and over again in the Bible is a metaphor of death. It's a euphemism of death. What you've got in Genesis 2 is a picture of death. Now, I'm convinced, I can't prove this, but when you look at this Hebrew word for deep sleep, it can sometimes be translated as death itself. At a minimum, it's a picture of death. I'm convinced probably, though I can't prove it conclusively, that on this day in Genesis 2, when Adam went into this deep sleep, Adam died. Because it's a picture of another Adam. Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, called the last Adam or the second Adam, who would indeed die to give life to his bride. And in Genesis 2, what happens? You've got the first Adam who dies, and God reaches into his side and brings forth his bride, because that's a picture of another Adam, Jesus. And John 19 tells us that as he hung on the cross and died, a Roman spear pierced his side, and out of his side came forth the blood that would give life to his bride. Hello. I mean, wow. I know somebody's going, oh, that's just coincidental. Accident. No, I'm telling you, that is providential. I mean, only God is smart enough to do this stuff. To connect those dots like that. What you have there is a picture of the gospel. The man died, Adam, to give life to his bride. And Jesus, the last Adam, died, and from his side, he gave life to his bride. You see, that is a picture of what Jesus wants you and I. That means a husband's love should bleed. Listen, if a man is still living, he's not really loving. Every man likes to think of himself as a great lover. Right? It's, kind of, it's kind of a male ego thing. You know, it's kind of a part of our identity and masculine. I'm a great lover. Are you? Because see, it ain't about what happens in the bedroom. It's about what happens before you get to the bedroom. 
You see, that, that, that's the real kind of love that, that, will, that will define all other kinds of love. And as long as you're still living, you're not loving. Not like Christ loved the church. You see, he laid down his life for his bride. If a man is still living, he's not really loving. To love like Christ, we must die to give life to our brides. You see, that's what it means to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And here's the reality. Most men are living for themselves. Practically, what's it mean to die for our wives? Well, you're probably not, thankfully, going to have to hang on a cross like Jesus hung on a cross for his. To die for your bride practically means to live for your bride. To live for them is to die for them. Now, if you stood at an altar one day and you took maybe a, a vow like the ones I do and probably a vow similar to the ones you did, whether it was two months ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago, you, you listened to a vow and at the end of that vow you said, I do. And do you realize the moment you said, I do, what you said is, I die too. See, to say I do is to say I die. Now, most people say I do, but they don't die, and that's why their marriage dies. But when two people die to give life to another, to give life to each other, the marriage doesn't die, the marriage lives. Marriages only die when two people choose to live. If you'd quit living and start dying, you would give love to your marriage and life to your bride. Uh, if, if I'm the one that did your vows, it went something like this, and probably you did something like this, whether it wasn't me personally, but I will always start with the man, I'll look at the man, I'll look at the husband, say, do you, sir, take this woman to be your wife? Do you promise in the presence of God and these witnesses, knowing that marriage is a sacred holy covenant to love her and honor her and keep her, whether in sickness or in health? Do you promise to forsake all others throughout the world, keeping yourself solely unto her, as long as you both shall live? And you say... Some of you forgot your line. <laughs> and you say? And the moment you said, I do, you say, I die too. See, God says, I no longer see two of you. I now just see one of you. You are now one flesh. The man is the head. The woman is the body. A picture of the bride and the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. That's you and I. And just as you are in Christ and Christ is in you, I want that now to be pictured now with the two of you, no longer two, but the one that you have become. I want you to see the sacrificial love of Christ has the power to transform our lives and a man and sacrificial love for his bride has the power to transform his wife. Listen carefully. You can get a new marriage without getting a new mate. Guess what? For 14 years, I wasn't always happy with the wife I had. I'm just going to confess that. I, I, I wasn't always happy for 14 years with the wife that I had. We got married and we were in love, but we didn't know how to really stay in love. We didn't know how to do the dance. I just showed up, kind of like to the 1980s dance floor, and I was just going to kind of feel my way through this thing. And it just, it's not going to go well for you if that's your strategy for winning. For 14 years, we had lots of highs in our marriage and lots of lows. That's kind of how marriage goes. But what happened in 14 years is the, the highs would stay about here, but the lows kept getting lower. You get what I'm saying? And I realized, I'm not happy with the wife I have. Check this out. I got the wife I always wanted when God got the man he always wanted. 
quit waiting on your wife to become the wife she ought to be, and you make the first move, you take the first step, and you become the man that you ought to be. See, when you become a new man, you just might get a new mate without getting a new marriage. See, it has, you have the power to transform your wife. You have the power to transform your bride. She will become the person that you tell her she is. She will become the person that she sees when she looks into your eyes. And every day, ask that question, mirror, mirror, on the wall. Am I beautiful enough at all? I'm trying to tell you, you have the power to shape her into the wife you've always wanted if you will first let God shape you into the man that he has always wanted. And for 14 years, I thought that I was being a biblical husband. I thought that I was being a godly husband. I thought I was living out Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. That's Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I thought I was, but I wasn't. You know why I thought I was? Because I would have died for my wife. I would have taken a bullet for my wife. I'm telling you, I would have taken a bullet to the head for my wife. Listen, dying for our wives is easy. Living for them is hard. See, for the first 14 years of my marriage, we weren't happy. Can I tell you why? Because I would have died for her, but I wasn't fully willing to live for her. And it wasn't until I realized that I have never fully died to myself to give life to my bride that I got a new bride and I got a new marriage and that was 14 years ago. See, your love has the power to transform her in the same way Jesus' love has the power to transform our lives. Do you know that God has transformed you through the love and the blood of the Son of God? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know what that says? Basically, if you have not been transformed into something new, it could be you've never actually been saved. Why are there so many people in the world that say they're Christians but don't act anything like a Christian? Could it be maybe it's easy to say it, but the proof is when you show it? Hey, there's a lot of people in the world that say I'm a Christian in name only, in lip only. It's easy to give lip service to loving Jesus, but can I tell you what the Bible teaches? If you still are what you were, you ain't. See, you can't stay the same when you've been immersed in the love of God. You can't stay the same when you've been filled with the Spirit of God. You can't stay the same when you truly put your faith in the Son of God. It's going to change you. The love of God has the power to transform you. Now watch this. Jesus didn't wait to love you until you got lovable. He loved you even when you weren't lovable. Right? Here's the gospel. Romans 5 and verse 8. That God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he didn't wait to die for you when you deserved it personally. He did not shed his blood only then at Calvary. He didn't wait for you to be lovable, to love you. He loved you even when you weren't lovable. When you weren't lovable, little you, he loved you. You see, love is unconditional. Love is sacrificial. That's the agape kind of love. And that love has transformed my life. I'm not what I was. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not always what I want to be, but I know I'm not what I used to be because that's the love of God in my life. Now watch this. In the same way God's love has the power to transform you, your love for your wife has the power to transform your wife. When I began loving my wife the way Christ has loved me, it transformed my wife 
into the wife I had always wanted personally. You see, this love is unconditional. Don't wait for your wife to be lovable. Well, Pastor Phil, you don't understand. You remember what Chelsea said last week about nag? Nervous laughter. <laughs> Stands for never any good. I mean, ladies, you probably realize this. Words don't work on men. Bludgeoning them with another Bible verse isn't going to change them. <laughs> and we'll talk in a few weeks about how to really change a man without a word. But I want you to see the, 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 the implication is the transformation that comes when we let God have all of us, that a life changed by God will always change those around us. Now I want you to see, a husband's love has to bleed, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Now everywhere you see church, or you see the word her, just write in your name, all right? We are the church. Uh, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus does not have multiple brides, he just has one bride, and collectively, corporately, together, we make up his bride. Now, I'm telling you guys, have a lot of hard time really wrapping their mind around this doctrine. One of the deepest doctrines in the New Testament is the church being the bride of Christ. And I'm just telling you, honestly, I don't fully understand it. I don't fully comprehend it, because I'm a lot more comfortable being a bridegroom than I am a bride. But when you say, I'm part of the bride of Christ... Gentlemen, you're part of Christ's bride. I know that is kind of hard to wrap your mind around, and I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. Some of you are really ugly brides. U G L Y, ugly bride. But you understand, Jesus says, Oh no, you're not ugly. You are a thing of beauty. You are my bride. You are my spotless, blameless, sinless, chaste bride. The bride of Christ. And I want you to see that Jesus doesn't just say, I do, and then be done. He says, I do, and then he loves you so that you become more like him too. And this is what happens when he sanctifies us, sets us apart, cleanses us with the washing of water by the word that he might present her, that church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, that she should be holy and without blemish. You see, a husband's love should bleed, but then a husband's love should lead. But you can't lead if you're not willing to bleed. And when you're willing to bleed, now maybe then she's willing to follow your lead. Listen carefully. I hear guys lament sometimes. Oh, but she won't follow me, Pastor Phil. Listen, our wives do not want to be married to a boss. They don't need a boss. They need a leader. And being a leader and being a boss are two different things. All right, when it says you're the head of your wife, it doesn't mean that like you're the husband dictator. That's not what it's talking about. Guess what? You're not on the throne of your home. Jesus is on the throne of your home. You get off the throne and put Jesus on the throne, and if you'll start to bleed, maybe then she'll follow your lead. Ladies, it's okay. You can say amen somewhere along the way. So I want you to see, ultimately, there are exceptions 
But generally speaking, a woman wants to follow a man who really is a leader and not simply trying to be a boss, you know, the husband dictator. That's not what it means to walk in the headship of your home that God has given you. That's not what it means to walk in leadership. It's, it's, it's not about just barking orders and saying, my way or the highway. Remember, she submits to your lead, but you're submitting to her need. That's what it means to be a leader. And I want you to see that ultimately, what does it mean to say that a husband's love should lead? Well, understand, spiritual leaders set the vision, values, and direction of the home. It is our responsibility as a picture of Christ to set the vision and the values and the direction of the home. It is up to you and I to set the tone. It's up to you and I to make Jesus on the throne. And that's what leaders do. We set the vision, the values, the direction. We're the ones ultimately that will lead our marriage to a specific destination. Now here's the problem. As the fallen sons of Adam, what was Adam's posture when Satan was leading his bride away and deceiving her into eating of that tree? I mean, here you have Adam. He is the guardian of Eden. And one would think in this moment as he's watching this happen in Genesis chapter three, as the protector, as the warrior that God has made him to be, he would go charging in to save his bride, even giving his life with a garden hoe and whack the head off the serpent and say, get out of my home. But he didn't do any of that. He's watching this whole thing, standing there doing nothing when he should have been doing something. And I would suggest that that posture has been embedded on all the hearts of the sons of Adam. That is why, typically speaking, the wife is far more motivated spiritually than her husband. It's been proven statistically, women are far more probable to do Bible study. Women are far more probable statistically to be involved in church and serving. They're far more probably statistically gonna be the ones nurturing their children spiritually. And I'm trying to tell you that many of our marriages are on the rocks because we, you see, have not built our life on the rocks and we have rocked the rolls. Listen, gentlemen, you and I are meant to be the pastors over our homes spiritual leaders set the direction and define the destination, but they're always servant leaders. Uh, this is, this is Jesus' style of leadership. You remember what happens when a couple of his disciples are like, well, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to sit on the right hand and you can sit on the left hand. Jesus said, hey guys, you don't get it. It is not about you. You want to be the chief among us? You've got to be the least among us. You want to be the first? You're going to have to be the last. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So how are you serving your wife and giving your life as a ransom for your wife? On a practical level, what does your wife need? How does she need you to serve? I can tell you for years and years, I didn't do any housework. I did my part. She had her part. I'm not trying to boast here, but I probably vacuumed the floor more in the last five years than I did the first 20 years of my marriage. You know why? Because that's what she needs. I don't want her coming home to a dirty house. Does your wife need you to do the dishes? Do the dishes. Serve your wife. Well, Pastor Phil, I'm not doing the dishes. That's, that's women's work. Listen, cowboy, if a little soap and water is gonna wash away your manliness, you need to get a hormone shot. 
I'm just saying. Jesus was willing to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. I think you can wash some dishes. Uh, how, about, how about you get up and make breakfast? Jesus was willing to make breakfast for his disciples on the shores of Galilee. What if you got up one day and made breakfast in bed for your wife? I'm just saying, she doesn't have to have 104 degree fever and convulsing before you do something nice for her. That's what it means to be a servant leader, looking for ways to serve. That's what servant leaders do. Servant leaders lead the way by serving those who follow them. And a lot of us are just pretending we're leading. Listen, somebody has said, if you think you're the leader and look behind you and nobody's following, you're just going for a walk. It's not good that man should be alone. If you feel like you're alone and just going for a walk, maybe it's because you didn't first bleed. You can't lead until you first bleed. Listen, servant leaders are always strong but humble. What do I mean by that? It means you're a picture of Christ. Christ lives in you. You're a picture of Christ in the home. He's both the lion and the lamb. As the lion, he's a warrior who's coming back to conquer. But as the lamb, he came to serve and to suffer. And in the heart of every Christian man is both the lion and the lamb. You see, you are the king of your castle and you're to be the warrior and guardian of your home. But you can't be all lion with no lamb. As the lamb, you've got to serve. As the lamb, you've got to suffer. And I will promise you that Jesus can be the lion because he first laid down his life as the lamb. I'm talking about being strong but humble. Humility, integrity, Humility means confessing my utter dependency on God. I can't do this without him. Humility means saying I'm sorry, making an apology, taking responsibility when you're wrong. It just happened this week. Hey, we all are gonna have bad moments. I had a bad moment this week. Sitting in my living room, Josh, my youngest son is there, and Krista got under my skin and ticked me off. I'm just being honest. Happens in every marriage. We all go through the same stuff because we're all made of the same stuff. She didn't do anything that bad, that wrong, but you know, you're kind of stressed, a little tired, and all of a sudden touches you off, and you know, she ticks me off. So what do I do when I get ticked off? I bit her head off. I did. Now what happens in the next 10 minutes will define your next two days. <laughs> Maybe two weeks. I sit in my chair, Spirit of God begins to convict me. Okay, I am so wrong. Lord, I am so sorry. I asked Krista to come back in the living room. It was important I do this in front of my son. He saw me do it. Guys, it is important that you show your children how to talk to their mother. He saw me do it. I'm going to do this in front of him. Honey, I am so sorry. I was so, so wrong. You did not deserve that. Will you please forgive me? Guys, I'm telling you, in a healthy marriage, you are giving and receiving forgiveness almost daily. I used to think, well, in a healthy marriage, you never have to say I'm sorry because you just 
do everything the right way. It's not true at all. Nobody does everything the right way every time. There are days you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, and it takes humility to give forgiveness. It takes humility to receive forgiveness. It takes humility to ask for forgiveness, but it's Ephesians 4.30, be kindly affectionate one toward another, forgiving each other as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You see, marriage is not merely for your satisfaction. It is for your sanctification. It's not merely for your gratification, it's for God's glorification. And here's the reality, if you will take your marriage and make sure God is greatly glorified, I will promise in your marriage you will be deeply gratified. You see, your, your love should bleed, your love should lead. A husband's love should pastor his wife. Christ died for his bride to sanctify and cleanse her. Hey, you don't know how to pastor your wife? Hey, start with just praying with your wife. I will promise you, if you'll start to pray with your wife every day, pray with her, pray over her, it will transform your marriage. Now, most men don't do this. You know why? Because guys don't want to look stupid. And we want to look good. We want to look like we know what we're doing. You, you, you don't understand, guys. You cannot mess this up. When women come and complain to me about their husbands, those guys, I never throw you under the bus. I'm just telling you, this is what I hear, Pastor Phil. They never complain because he ain't handsome enough. Pastor Phil, my husband just isn't handsome. I never hear him say that. I'm thinking that, but, <laughs> but what I think doesn't matter. No, she thinks you're handsome. Trust me, she, she thinks you're handsome. I, I seldom, once in a while, I seldom hear them complain, well, Pastor Phil, he's not a good provider. He didn't take care of us. No, that's not the problem. He's probably a hard worker. Here is what I hear over and over again. Pastor Phil, I wish my husband would pray with me. I wish my husband would be the spiritual leader of our family. You see, being a pastor of your home is not merely what you have in your head, it's what you have in your heart. It's not what you know, it's what you are. Just start to pray with your wife. Husbands, love your wives in a way that will purify his wife. Christ cleanses the church from the spots and blemishes. Let me ask you, is your wife a better person because she's married to you? She ought to be. Is she a better Christian? because you're her husband. See, God wants to use you in some way to sanctify her. But you won't if your love does not bleed and your love does not lead. Listen, a husband's love should protect his wife. Christ wants to present his bride as holy, protecting her virtue, protecting your home from anything that could threaten the marriage in a way that is unhealthy. You see, once a husband's love bleeds and it leads, now I want you to see what he says. A husband's ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Your love should bleed, it should lead, and it should feed. You know why? Because our brides are our bodies. We are the head, they are the body. What would happen to your body if your head did not feed it consistently? Pretty soon, 
the body and head would die. Do you see what happens when you starve your wife emotionally? You are starving your body and your marriage is dying. Listen carefully, if you're not regularly feeding and nourishing your wife emotionally, you're starving her and your marriage is slowly dying. What does this mean? Listen guys, you connect emotionally with a woman through S-E-X. That's how God made it. She does not connect emotionally that way, not initially. She connects emotionally through T-I-M-E and T-A-L-K. You know why she loves you and fell in love with you? Because you talk to her. You listen to her. Remember all those times while you were dating and you'd be on the phone for hours and hours and hours? Somewhere along the way, you quit doing that. And she's starving emotionally. You see, this is a love that feeds, constantly feeding and nourishing your body, your bride. Listen, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's all meant to be a picture of the gospel. And I'm gonna ask you men to do something risky right now. I'm gonna ask you to take the first step, make the first move. Take your wife by the hand, come to this altar. As we sing this song, a picture of the gospel, Christ and his bride. If you can't get all the way here, just stop wherever you are. They're gonna to pray together after this song. Come quickly. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me. But it ends with the bride and groom wedding by glassy sea. Death, where is your sting? Cause I'll be there singing holy, holy, holy is the Is a story of a bride and wife waiting on a wedding day. Anticipation welling up inside while her groom is crowned a king. And oh, death, where is your sting? Cause we'll be there singing holy.
There's the gospel. It's pictured in marriage. The bride and the bridegroom together forever. The story of God begins with the Son of God hanging on a cross for me, and it ends with a bride and a groom and a wedding by a glassy sea. And sweet friends, I know that this is hard for some of you, because some of you are really hurting and just barely hanging on. For some of us here, it's all we can do to hold the hand of our husband or of our bride. A lot of harm, hurt, pain. And I will promise you, I promise you, I promise you that if the two of you will begin to pray and petition the Son of God to send the Spirit of God, the God of all grace, the God of the resurrection, the God of redemption, the God of reconciliation will come rushing in. And this one thing has the power to transform your marriage. For 14 years, I didn't pray with my wife. I could pray in front of thousands. But something about praying with this one was a deeply scary thing because it's intimacy. It's the deepest level of intimacy. So I'm gonna ask you to do something right now, guys. I'm gonna ask you to bow with your wife, close your eyes, and I'm gonna ask you to pray over your bride. Maybe you've never done this before. I pray this won't be the last time. I'm gonna lead you through this. I want you to pray out loud after me so your wife can hear you as God hears you. Pray this, Jesus, I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my precious bride. I pray your blessing over her. God, that your gracious hand be with her. Jesus, help me to love her the way you have loved your bride. Help me to lay down my life for her daily. Help me to bless her and serve her and love her and lead her. Make me the man you want me to be, a picture of Christ to my family. For your great glory, Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give Jesus the glory today? Praise him, would you? I love you so much. It's an honor, honor to be your pastor. I love you men so much. There's a bunch of intercessors here, altar workers, counselors are gonna be here. Some of you ought to stay. Walk this way and say, hey, would you pray for us? Would you help me to take the next step? We love you. Have a blessed, blessed Sunday.